0: Welcome to For a Living. I'm Daniel Lazar. Thanks for being here. This podcast is my nod to the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Louis Duds Terkel. And to that end, it's my space to slow things down and explore working lives. If you've been tuning in this season, you know that I've been exploring the working lives of artists of various mediums. I talked to a producer and a photographer, a pianist and a poet, a DJ and a dancer, and I bookended the season with two Berlin-based contemporary artists. You know, I've learned so much this season. I-, I rediscovered some of the creative spirit of my youth, and I've newly discovered some innovative approaches to working on art. And this is the last drop of the season. This is the end beautiful friend. It's the end. The end, I dare say, of the most ambitious and rewarding creative project of my life. Now, did I save the best for last? Maybe. (laughs) Maybe I did. I can't say for sure, right? But I can say that I recorded this conversation a long time ago. And I've been sitting on it for longer than I care to admit so that I could drop it on my guest's birthday. That's right, kids. Today is Hannah Doherty's birthday. And so if you were wondering why this podcast is dropping on a Sunday instead of on a Monday, like low these two years, it's because today is Hannah Doherty's birthday and I didn't get her a gift. So Hannah, here's, here's your gift. Happy birthday. And in this conversation, the birthday girl and I discuss, well, we discuss a lot of things. We discuss her firmly held position, that no matter how problematic it can be to discuss art, everyone's an artist. We also talk about how in her work, Hannah constructs a cast of characters. And we also tiptoe around some of the politics of her work and some of the politics of the art world more broadly. Listen, y'all, in the months that have passed since we recorded this thing, this conversation has become increasingly valuable to me. And I hope, and I firmly believe that you'll find it valuable also. Now, before we get rolling here, there are a few people we need to thank. Hey! Hey, oh, hey, sorry, what's up, buddy?
1: Well, the ceiling, the sky, the clouds, (laughs) the stars. Yeah, you're a star. Lots of things are up.
0: Lots of things are up. Hey, uh, I have to record this podcast introduction real quick, and then I will be back with you, okay?
1: Why are you recording in the living room?
0: (laughs) Because I am going to play piano and sing in the introduction to the podcast.
1: You're going to sing in the podcast? No! (laughs) <laughs> wants to hear this it will make their ears bleed
0: <laughs> i mean maybe a little bit but i have to because it's my guest's birthday and i want to sing them happy birthday <gasps> is
1: it hannah's birthday it's
0: hannah's birthday yeah hey um you want to sing happy birthday
1: maybe if mama sings Mama!
0: run and get it real quick hurry up
1: Sure. It's for Hannah's birthday. Let's sing happy birthday. (laughs) Megan, are you serious? Will you sing? Let's do it.
0: Okay. Um, Okay. I was totally prepared to do this on my own, but um, yeah, I guess uh, it's going to be the three of us. So I say we do it in one take and just let it be. Sound good? Yeah. Hey, I already got the keyboard all set up and everything, but can one of you hit record when I nod my head? Cool, all right, give me just one second here. All right, cool. All right, here goes nothing. bad at all, kids. Hey, thanks a lot, Madeline. Is there anything else that you want to say to Hannah on her birthday?
2: How about I tell her a joke?
0: (laughs) Yeah? (laughs) Alright, fine, I'm in, but not when you're three-hour jokes, alright? Okay, Hannah, for your birthday, a joke for Madeline. Hit it.
1: A kid named Tommy was walking down the street with his grandmother. (laughs) He found a five euro piece. A five euro bill. He asked his grandmother, Hey Grammy, can I please pick this five-year bill up? And she said, No, things that are on the ground you can't pick up. Then they kept walking and he found a cool rock on the ground. He said, Grammy, can I please pick up this rock? She said, No, things that are on the ground you can't pick up. They kept walking and his, his grandma tripped on a rock. She said, Can you please help me up? He said, No, things that are on the ground you can't
0: pick up. Oh, no. <laughs> I hope your grandma doesn't listen to this. <laughs> All right. All right. That's the joke. Thank you for that, I think. Um, say happy birthday to Hannah.
1: Happy birthday to Hannah. Wait, we're recording?
0: Yeah, we are. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but can you scram out of here so I could finish recording this thing so we could hang out a little bit later? Yeah. All right. Go, go, go. And close the door, okay? Oh, well, can we me the transition tomorrow? Yes. Yeah. I... well, that was an unexpected surprise. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. Well, all jokes aside, that wasn't actually the only song that you're going to hear on this podcast. Indeed, you will definitely want to stick around to the end of the episode to hear a song that I wrote and recorded with some pals of mine in Chicago about this conversation with Hannah. Got to admit, I'm in love with the song. All right, let's dive into it. Hannah Doherty, welcome to For a Living. It is such a pleasure to share space with you, to be with you face-to-face, eye-to-eye. We're doing it. Welcome to the podcast. How do you describe what you do?
2: I am a visual artist. I do drawing-based installations, usually large constructions involving wood and paper. These installations are... uh, shown in various galleries, museums, art spaces, as well as in theaters. I do scenography as well.
0: So I want to dive into all of that. But before we do, can you walk me along your path a little bit? And in so doing, give me a sense of like how and why and when you knew you had to be an artist.
2: Okay, so I I subscribe to the School of thought. That, as Joseph Boyce says, everyone's an artist. I find it problematic to say, like, I chose to become an artist or I, 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 um, I became an artist at a certain time. It doesn't have to do with education or training or, uh, or anything beyond uh, just intention. And I think, I really, truly, deeply believe that anyone and everyone is an artist uh, when you look at children you know all children make art that's it's, it's uh, like a quintessential part of of childhood it's how we we measure their development can they draw are they holding the pencil correctly doing a circle adding arms legs you know as a kid it's magic when you when you start making art it, there's no thought about the quality of the art it's the magic of creation. And I think, uh, unfortunately, a lot of people are discouraged from from continuing that or or choose to focus on other things. There was no point in my life where I, I chose to be an artist or something. And I think, yeah, everyone's an artist. I do have it as a career, <laughs> <laughs> which makes it different. Obviously, um, I chose to focus all my time on it. And um, I chose to study it. And At a pretty young age, it was just obviously the most important thing to me to do, to just draw pictures and and make these worlds, and and I just kind of never gave that up, I guess. I did go to a magnet high school in Philadelphia, where I grew up, studying in visual arts, and I went on to get a bachelor's degree at the Maryland Institute College of Art and a master's degree from the Royal College of Art in London. And yeah, I've been working as a as an artist uh, ever since.
0: I think what you say about all of us being artists is genuinely beautiful. I appreciate that democratic view as opposed to a more exclusive or elitist view of art and artistry. I also agree that it's intrinsic. And in your response, I think Between the lines, you were speaking to how some people, for various reasons, get discouraged from doing art, right? Not that I want to force you to dive too far into your biography, but I am curious, who were the people in your life who encouraged you to pursue this passion and this craft,
2: I, I come from a family of musicians. Do <laughs> you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. My my family. Um, my my grandfather was a traditional uh, folk musician. He was really, really good, and he raised you know his his family to really play music. And and um, all of my brother. I have four brothers. They're all incredible musicians. <laughs> I am not. <laughs> okay. Um. So yeah. I mean, I guess to some extent, they were like good at
1: drawing (laughs) maybe you can can put
2: down the uh you know yeah music just isn't isn't my my passion and I I did have a a really creative uh house you know that I was raised in and I had a lot of exposure to you know really cool artists and and musicians and it was a, a good upbringing that way that I had enough exposure and uh I had the cool hippie parents that were very encouraging of any sort of creative endeavor so that said, I wouldn't have made it a career without, you know, just extreme passion for what I do. And, and uh, if they had told me that I shouldn't do it, I still would. But yeah, uh, I think I think passion is really one of the biggest driving reasons to to create a career out of something, like, you know, any creative endeavor that way.
0: So you had a passion for visual art from a very early age. You had a passion for music. Just to put a thumb on this really quickly, I'm kind of curious, who were the musical artists that inspired you when you were a teen?
2: I was really into punk music. Black Flag, Minor Threat, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, My social circle was mostly in the punk
0: scene. You know, we've never talked about this. I'm curious if armed with those punk virtues and values that punk ethos were you able to find a safe and nurturing space at this magnet art school in Philly
2: if i can be honest i was interested in the least amount of academics that i could possibly do i was terrible in school i was i just really didn't it, it the the traditional school system I think unfortunately isn't, isn't the right match for a lot of kids. And I was one of them. I was getting into a lot of trouble, <laughs> yeah. skipping classes and, you know, getting chased around by the cops and stuff like that. And I, I mean, I think it became really clear to my parents that I wasn't going to make it through on the traditional way. And so I was just, you know, really happy to to get out of that, that system. Now, the art school, of course, is real attractive because that's what I like doing, and and I think you know if you can find a place to put your kid where they get to do the thing they like, then you have a, a higher chance of it working out. You know, um, you know, I it was it was really good for learning discipline in visual arts for me, where you know you're at school for let's say six hours of the day, and and three of them are you know, standing at an easel or, you know, sitting at a drafting board or something like that. I think discipline's hard for everyone. That's hard. I mean, it's not just art that, that goes across the board. Anyone who wants to get good at something just has to get used to sitting on the bench and (laughs) just having that sit slice, you know, that like, like showing up, putting in the hours, practice, 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 whether you're doing, you know, judo or or piano, no, and Passion is is gonna really make you improve. It's about putting in the time. So I think that that was was one of the real good things to come out of it. Now I I ended up going to college and I couldn't write an essay because. They forgot to teach me about that. <laughs> I didn't know how to, you know, what's it called? Citations. Like I had to, and this was before the internet. You couldn't just Google it. So I had to like find smart kids who had the patience and kindness of their heart to teach me what they learned in four years of regular high school. I mean, I'm, I'm missing big, big gaps of, of information. And that's, that's the trade-off, you know, I would have. I would have missed it anyway, I think, if I had gone to regular school because
0: I wasn't going. It's kind of interesting in a way because you go to this art magnet school and you are an artist and one might think that that's the fit. Like you were able to be in a space that's created to nurture people precisely like you. But despite that, you had to listen to Black Flag, Ditch School and (laughs) Run From the Cops. You just, you weren't hip to being institutionalized. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think that's, I and mean, that's still that's still an issue for me. I've been, it's embarrassing how much I I still get so reactionary to like authority and institutions and it's I mean I sometimes I look at my own behavior and reactions to things and I'm like grow up, dude, you're not a teenager. But I just it's I think it's just that's in my heart. That's who I'm always gonna be. I'm always gonna be, you know smoking in the girl's room and and bitching about whoever whoever's telling me what to do you know I think um yeah I I'm I'm a terrible person to bring to to big uh openings and stuff like that at at institutions because I will sit there and just tell you everything that's wrong with everything except for the art I love art I love seeing art and being around art and celebrating art but Uh, did you notice how many women are in this show? It's only 20% women. And oh, did you hear about what they spent their money on and they should be supporting, you know? Yeah, I I try not to let the negativity make me into that reactionary person that just can't get through simple ceremonies.
0: Can I ask you, though, in what ways is your work informed by... This anti-institutionalist, punk, smoking in the girls' room, <laughs> fuck the grown-ups kind of mentality.
2: It's it, it comes more into play when I'm in decision-making mode, not in production mode. So, you know, after, after the work that I've done has been produced, I do have a certain amount of agency over where that's going and who's having access to it and these types of things. Now, you know, I I'm not anti-establishment by any means and I think there are tons of of good institutions, but um but uh the the art market is a is a incredibly complicated place and I have a lot of really negative experiences that in, informed my uh my decision-making process about uh what to do with my art. Yeah yeah i i don't do well with abusive power and authority i definitely struggle with economy driven you know uh decisions that are made hey you know it's art is money and and it's it's real hard being in that world i do also have to pay my rent with money (laughs) (laughs) so there yeah i mean um you know, if if money wasn't an option, and I know anyone with any career could say this, if money wasn't an option, I would uh, very much love to just show in in project rooms and and do more community outreach stuff. And and yeah, the the fact of the matter is, you have to you know jump through certain hoops. Um, you have to make certain sales and and they, i think the thing that i realize is you know i there are places that i can't be that my art can be there are you know ways to sell it where you don't have to be watching the <laughs> <laughs> the sausage getting made you know yeah. um so i try to avoid it just for my own sanity um the the really disgusting art fairs and they just they just hurt my soul in a way that makes me angry (laughs) but you know i try to really make sure that i i can also you know the flip side of that really spend time in the places that are just art as a celebration art as a place of worship art as a an act of faith art as something to be shared with the community and and those places exist thank god and and you just they don't always pay the rent, <laughs> but, but yeah, uh, there, I think there's a way to find a balance and maintain some sanity. Haven't quite found it still searching. And, and it's not that money's evil. It's the abuse of power that's evil. And the, the kind people are, are, um, keeping the boat afloat for me. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. Now you had alluded to this in the text of that response you're talking about decisions and you know what you choose to create what you choose to work on I'm almost desperately interested in decisions or in choices can you talk to me a little bit about like how you choose projects and how you choose subjects and kind of what goes into that like complicated matrix of decision making
2: yeah yeah certainly that's 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 the fun part that's the best part I mean I think I kind of always have this need to create something I think it's always in the in the back of my head it's this sort of you know running in the background all this and uh and then and then yeah I I have I guess I'd call it an archive I have you know just things that I pick up as I'm going along You know, from physical objects, photographs, magazines, um, scrapbooks, all sorts of stuff like that, to to online, I just, you know, I have folders and folders of just, you know, crap from Google Images that I'm like, this is, I got to save this for, I have hard drives full of just piles of images. Sometimes I'll get started, you know, researching something, and then I get stuck in this loop of like trying to find the perfect picture of a tiger, and I'll waste... (laughs) three days of my life (laughs) and then i'll end up you know having to go to the zoo with the camera equipment and trying to set up this thing and then realize that it's actually not about this at all so so this is my 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 recent realization is that you know this the screen time is not productive time for me um that's really hard to admit that (laughs) um because i i love my screens but but um my my brain Really, kind of exits creative mode and and gets into like this sort of hunting mode of like I'm looking for something specific and it's not putting a lot of thought into it. So I think I think um for me it has to it's I gotta go out in the world. I gotta have input. The things that the, the things that surprise you, the things that you know you're not looking for, but they kind of find you. I think those things usually are the most powerful inspirations for me. I, uh, I spent some time in the rainforest in Costa Rica about two years ago, and, uh, and I mean, you see pictures of the rainforest, right? I love nature. I love trees and stuff. It's gorgeous. Flowers and animals. That's what I'm into. I was shocked at the biodiversity, you know, that's not what I was looking for. I was looking for the perfect leaf to put in the collage, you know, (laughs) and then I would just stand there and it's, it's because you can't show that experience in a photograph on a screen, standing in the middle of this forest, that's like, just like crunching and crumbling and slurping like these noises of just life happening there the the earth is moving and there's bugs and there's leaves falling and something's growing and there's creaking and groaning and and everywhere you look your eye is seeing something that's not being repeated anywhere else it's totally bizarre it's totally totally bizarre because I think in in the city you know you you see there's a window there's a window there's there's a car there's a car there's a car and so your brain kind of goes to sleep because you're you're looking around and you see the pattern and you can just shut down because the pattern is not going to change. And then you're just standing there in this rainforest going, like, holy fuck. I've ne- There's a bug I've never seen before. And it's next to another bug that I've never seen before. <laughs> and they're chewing on some fungus that I've never seen before. And I, I so it just got like into, I was reading these books about like, Really into this, the, you know, the trees, like how the trees are all talking to each other, and the the funguses, the way there's you know these massive organisms, and people don't even know what they are. These scientists don't know. They're not plants. They're not animals. They have something like a nervous system. It can kind of react similar to a brain, but we're not gonna call it that because it's not that. And it's this huge thing under our feet. Oh my god! Like, right. <laughs> and I, I just suddenly I'm like I. I, you know, this is, this is something, what is this? How can I kind of bring this back into the studio? And what does this mean? What does this mean for, for me and for us? And how do I show it? And, and, and I guess that's when that, you know, after you get the input, then you get to start, you know, putting things out and, and thinking about, you know, how this process is changing now because it's not about making a picture of an interesting composition of trees. I'm, now I'm thinking, wait, these things are connected and that's important for people to know when they're looking at this. And I want to express that in a way that you feel connections between objects. And so this isn't lines on paper. This has to be, there's something under the feet. And so I go into my studio and it's just this big playroom basically it's a giant mess it's a heap of garbage (laughs) but but I just you know I have all these scraps and and uh things and I just kind of start messing around with it um a lot of times things will start with a very realistic drawing because I I don't know how to get into the abstract world without that entry point I think it's too much of a classical art education if I could go back, I wouldn't change a thing about it, though, because goddamn, <laughs> I love drawing. I love drawing. And so, yeah, I think I think usually I'll start in a more traditional format, pencil on paper. And then I, and then I feel more free to start breaking down the, the barriers, breaking the rules and, and um, try to get to the core of what I'm trying to express. I guess that's yeah.
0: Can I take you back to the rainforest for a moment? (laughs) Yeah. Because it dawns on me that the rainforest might just serve as a robust metaphor for us to talk both about choice and about consciousness. You know, perhaps later in our conversation, we can talk about the role or the problem that consciousness plays into your practice as an artist. But for now, I want to try to tee up a question about choice. Like when you're in the rainforest, you don't want to miss the forest for the trees, as they say. You know, you can't know the whole forest, but you surely can't know the whole forest if you focus on a single fungus for the duration of your stay. And so you have to make consciously and otherwise real choices about where your focus should go. And I say that to ask, so with so much to think about and so much to feel in this rich world of ours, would you be willing to talk with me a little bit about how you make choices, choices about what subjects to explore artistically or what projects to pursue?
2: Okay, I heard... A quote? Well, I'm terrible with quotes. Like, I get them wrong all the time. It doesn't yeah. matter if this is a real quote or not. <laughs> because <laughs> the idea is actually... I heard a quote. I've never looked at if this is real. An artist knows as much about art as a bird knows about ornithology. And I think I think what, what I love about that idea is, you know, when, when, you, when you ask me about process, like, you know, dialing something in and... And choosing what gets my attention, choosing what you know, what direction to take something. I'm like, ah, uh, I don't know. I'm just flapping my wings <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah. I, which isn't to say I'm some, um, you know, I, the spirit guides me, or or that I or that I uh, I don't know why I make decisions. I do know. I, you know, I know about composition. I know about color theory. I know about graphically, what works, you know, historically, and the other works that I've made, what was really successful, and what would I like to go back to? I'm not going to deny any of that. But I do think that it's so uh, difficult to, to answer questions like that, because you just don't think about it. And if you do think about it too much, you really, really fuck yourself up. And I think so much of the art that I love, and the art that I want to make, is this art where you just kind of you make some jumps leaps of faith you know you have to to just say i i don't know where this come from i'm i'm just gonna i I gotta get this out this has gotta i gotta make some stupid cloud paintings i gotta you know here come the snakes i don't know we're just doing snakes like it's and and it's stupid and i think that you have to i have to for my creative process i gotta i gotta really listen to these you know impulses these really childish impulses and um that's what keeps it, for me, um, I want to say like a practice of faith. Now, I, I'm an atheist, but this is how, maybe I'm not, because this is what I believe in, and it's, it's, um, it's got to do with trusting yourself. It's got to do with not fearing mistakes. The second I get too calculated, I feel like a lot of my a lot of my enjoyment in creating goes away and I I feel like those are usually the least successful works. The ones where I have uh, too much executive
0: control over the process, if that makes any sense. It does. If that makes any sense, yeah. That's endlessly fascinating to me. So you on some level make a, a choice or perhaps it's more accurate to say that you follow your instinct to not let executive control dominate your decision-making process when it comes to the subject of your next project.
2: Yeah. <laughs> now, now I feel like, I feel... You looked
0: defeated mm, when you said that. No, I just I just mean, want to know, I love that idea. I'm inspired by that idea. I just... Why? Why? Why does it inspire me? Yeah. Because it suggests at the very least that you're letting the language disappear and that you're allowing yourself to follow a feeling And to follow an instinct and to follow what I'm going to loosely call yourself and in an age that in no way, shape or form rewards that (laughs) I take some joy in knowing that to some degree you do that. And just as much joy in knowing that you've succeeded in doing that. Like, I think your work, as we'll discuss, is magnificent. And so to the extent to which what you just said is accurate, you know, it seems like it's part of the story. I will leave it to you to tell me if that's like the story, you know, in terms of like what motivates your decision making. Yeah, um, yeah. But to the extent to which that is the story, I find that endlessly inspiring. Yeah. Okay. But is it true?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no, no, it's, I, uh, yeah, it's true. That's, that's definitely, that's definitely it. It's just somehow saying it out loud makes it sound so, um, I'm kind of, uh, you know, allergic to, uh, esoteric speech about, about, a creative process. I, I get really turned off by it. It's there. it's there. There aren't good words to talk about it without using this kind of, yeah.
0: I mean, Hannah, I guess that's what I'm, with some reticence, gently, I hope, trying to push at here. Like, I understand why you want to repudiate what you probably rightly deem to be esoteric language. And I promise I'm not trying to drag you into a discussion about process that you have every reason to be allergic to. I guess in a more innocent way, without dragging you into speaking a language that you're averse to, which I respect, I guess I'm trying to innocently inquire about how you make artistic decisions.
2: I think being able to speak the language doesn't, what do you say, supersede the ability to think without language. You can learn to speak the language, but the only thing you can learn with the creative process is to turn it off. And the language doesn't get you better at the creative process. The language is how you discuss it. And unfortunately, it's really clunky and it's not adequate. And so that's why, you know, you have these academics. You know, one of my biggest regrets was getting a master's degree, not because it was a bad education, the education was fine, but because it took me so far away from making work from my heart, from my gut, from my soul, you know, and it just became so cerebral and so academic. And I felt like before going to grad school, I felt like, you know, the dumbest person at the show because I didn't have enough access to the language to discuss references and to communicate concepts and theories that i was able to express in my art and then by learning that language i felt like i had also kind of cut off a part of my creative process by focus not cut off it atrophied that's what i'll say it atrophied because I spent so much time trying to learn all the big words to justify, explain, and, you know, add value to this for people who needed to to know with language what I was doing. And yeah, in retrospect, that it took me a long time to get that muscle back. And I'm still working on getting that muscle back. And I'm still working on finding the words in this, you know, clunky language to say the things that I'm trying to say. And i you know, for visual artists in general, that that's always a challenge when you're you've got a brain that's thinking in pictures. And I don't know. That's my I'm theory.
0: With you. <laughs> I'm with you. Hannah, I feel obliged to disclose to you that I'm grappling with a not insubstantial sense of guilt for putting you in a position to have to deploy words to to describe what you do and how you feel about it. And not that this will solve the problem, but it might assuage my guilt a little bit. I should at least offer you a drink. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take a drink. Beer, champagne, wine? Beer sounds beer. good.
2: This feels like a beer conversation. seems like it. A...
0: All right, buddy. Here you go. I owe you at least this.
2: <laughs> Thank you very much.
0: Prost. Mm, post. <sighs> So I have an idea that's either clever or totally misguided. (laughs) (laughs) And if you're willing to play with me, I want to ask how your work is influenced by or motivated by or somehow speaks to a couple of concepts that I have in mind. Will you play? It's sort of like a, almost like a word association game.
2: Okay. Yeah. Let's do it. Let's do it. Yeah.
0: I've seen your work at a couple of galleries. I was checking out your website. I know you. I like you. I care about you a lot. Here's the first. Notions of Utopia and Dystopia.
2: Yeah, super super fun place to to go mentally. I think that's one of my biggest motivators to make art because when I'm making art, I am able to access utopia. It is it is it's magic. To make art. You're making magic. You want something, you draw a picture of you have it. What? <laughs> magic. Yes. And you know, when you're a little kid, you can draw a picture of a sword, cut it out, and you have a sword. And that never stopped happening for me. Never stopped. And you it's you know, where do I want to be? I get to make that. That's my job. That's that's utopia. Dystopia is all the things you love being destroyed all the time. And, and you taking that in visually beauty exists because of, you know, you see it when it's next to this ugliness, you see, you know, the joy of, you know, humor, the funniest things are like, you know, it's, it's much funnier (laughs) when there's something real tragic there. And that's, that's my experience as a human, as an artist, it's, profoundly tragic what's happening in the in the world on so many levels and i can't stop thinking about it and i want to make a good place to go to but you got to think about that stuff too you know
0: so it was almost a hundred years ago when the french philosopher paul Valery said at the end of the first world war the war to end all wars. (laughs) And oh, what man hath wrought. And he said at the time, we hope vaguely, we dread precisely. Our fears are infinitely more precise than our hopes. Wow. And I want to ask you, because a hundred years later that quote, hits home in profound and obvious ways as we look towards existentially challenging times how does that impact how you do your work or why you do your work?
1: Mm.
2: So I have I have um, what I think of as a cast of characters in my sort of visual lexicon lots of things I just keep drawn and painting over and over again. And, um, one of the first ones that I, I just kind of got obsessed with this object and, and just kind of obsessively made, you know, pictures, images, drawings, paintings, sculptures of birdhouses. That was, um, an early, so, so my, my, my earlier works were really exploring this object a lot. And, um, it's it's a, it's a it's a lovely little object. It's so pretty, and and uh, everyone oh, that's so pretty. You know, that's that's a neat object. And I I I had um a really good, beautifully made handbook of how to how to build a birdhouse of woodworker skills, and it was actually from a, a series of books made for recovering alcoholics, who needed to start finding other hobbies. And I thought that's heavy already. Okay, so this is. what can you do? And you just think, oh, make this banal object. Like how, you know, you're struggling with alcoholism. And here, oh, here, make a little birdhouse, you know, (laughs) fuck you. I don't want to make a birdhouse. (laughs) So I was thinking about these people and how they must have been, you know, the audience that was intended for this book. Okay. And then, and then we get into the the objects, this, this birdhouse, this birdhouse. It's so sweet. Everyone has a very positive association with birdhouses. Think about it. Birds, after flying, really cool. They also do this other thing that's amazing. They build these nests, and they're so beautiful. It's such a beautiful moment in nature. You find a bird's nest with eggs in it. And what do we do? We build a box <laughs> shaped like a human house and put it as close to us as possible because we need to have this nature near us, but it has to be our way. It has to be fit into our idea of what is cute and perfect. And, and I love that I love that because I think that is so much exactly that it's a it's a really really big vague hope and it's this really specific fear of like you know this this nature this like we it it has to be controlled and it has to be near us and it has to be you know the angles have to be correct we have to cut this 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 is the direction step one step two and 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 yet you can't express that with this object. The the idea that I'm saying with this object is every time I show it to someone, oh, that's really cute. That's a cute little (laughs) bird. Has no. Oh, it looks like a face. It looks like a hat. It looks like. And I find that to be super fascinating. It's a fascinating puzzle to try. How do I express what I what I'm thinking about this object? I can't. I gave up. Um, I also tried it with rainbows. Rainbows are like you know. I think they're. a rainbow in the wild, a real rainbow. When you see one, I mean, people stop their car and get out. You know, you just think, oh, this is why people believe in God. You know, it's so freaking beautiful. And um, have you ever tried to make a picture of a rainbow? Let me tell you, <laughs> not the same. It does not, you know, it's not this awe-inspiring moment where you, you really think about, you know, the, the beauty of the world can create this totally abstract, beautiful thing. And there has to be souls. And and you, you draw the shape and the colors in the right order. And it was, oh, that's nice. And you can't make an object that is a picture of a rainbow that expresses how much more beautiful a real rainbow is. Than, <laughs>
1: right, right.
2: Um, and... Um, <laughs> and i I got obsessed with this object when i was I was dealing with some some real heavy depression at at one point when I was living in london and I, I was just i was just in the in one of the darkest places i've ever been and and it was that kind of depression that makes things funny, you know like like just the absurdity about the horribleness of everyone and everything all the time and and this this rainbow became this object for me to really get into and i was like i'm gonna try to make this rainbow express how horrible the world is <laughs> <laughs> it was not possible i tried my hardest everyone was just think you can't get away from that association that beauty i don't know i don't know if that if that speaks to preciseness of a fear but um
0: did you know that Talking about birdhouses is like ornithology for alcoholics. (laughs) 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 So, remember, we're still kind of playing this foolhardy word association game that I devised on the spot. And we were talking about ideas of utopia and dystopia. And in that response, you mentioned humor and you talked about the role of humor. Maybe if you would be so kind, since it's a virtue that you and I both enjoy, what is the role of humor in your thinking about your work?
2: It's selfish. I uh, enjoy humor. I enjoy art that uses humor or, you know, any, anything that uses humor. I need that. I need that lightness and uh, I can't spend all my time in, in the dark places The dark things aren't as dark unless there's something funny around to add some contrast to it. I I need humor. I I get so bored at museums sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) And then you find something that's funny. Oh, man, I just think, oh, that made my day. I just, I need, I need to laugh.
0: Is it conscious? Do you seek to inject humor or a certain levity into some of your work? Or does it just sort of flow from you the way that humor flows from you as I know that it does because I know you
2: it's it's just uh, I'd say it it flows for me I I couldn't not do it yeah it's entertaining like working on something that's funny is so much more fun than doing on something <laughs> that's not I I love coming into the studio and and uh and having a good laugh that's that's important I might I have this one painting my favorite painting of all time and it's not a painting it's a collage it's so stupid I got I went to the Naturkunde Museum here in Berlin the Natural History Museum and they have this big section of minerals and it's like you know these big cases of all these gemstones and crystals and I don't know anything about minerals whatever but I took a bunch of pictures because they're just fun to look at and I just needed pictures of minerals whatever and uh, <laughs> there's one that's like it's like a pyramid. <laughs> it's green. It has kind of a dent in the middle. And I put two googly eyes on it. <laughs> and it's, it's... I will never sell this picture. <laughs> my favorite thing to look at. I'm thinking of it. And it makes me laugh. It's, But, I mean, you got to see it. It's genuinely the best thing right. you'll well, see. Dude, like... you had
0: me a googly eyes. <laughs> I'm a fucking sucker for googly eyes. And... Like everyone else, rubber chickens, rubber oh, chickens and googly oh, eyes. Have oh. you ever used a rubber chicken in your work?
2: No, I've never used a rubber chicken. Jesus, what, what was I thinking? How how did that get by me? <laughs> I can you use a rubber chicken?
0: You can borrow one of mine. I've You've
2: got a collection.
0: <laughs> yeah. Mm. Okay. So, notions of utopia and dystopia, humor. Since you brought it up, but perhaps on the other hand. How does social justice and problems around social justice inform your thinking of your work? We pivoted from googly eyes.
2: That was a hard, hard turn there. I'm not very good at this. That's fine. Social justice. In the art world, there's uh, lots of room for improvement in terms of equality and, um, you know, racial, gender, sexuality, orientation, disability, uh, rights, you know, all these things are are only, only very recently, you know, really getting the attention that they deserve. There's tons of discrimination. I, of course, cis white lady, and for me, it's just really important that every single person in the community is involved in working towards equality equity Um, when it comes to my work i consider my community part of this job and you know campsite rules you got to leave this place better than uh, how you found it and we found it in a a pretty messy spot we're getting better at it i'm on several committees some, some women's groups some parenting groups and some juries making decisions about uh, studio allocations and different funding opportunities and stuff like that. And, and that's something that comes up so much. And I'm so glad that there is this discussion going on. And I'm so shocked <laughs> at the number of times I have to you know point out obvious discriminations and stuff. But um, I'm happy to continue being involved in that as much as I can. If we're going to make contemporary art that matters... We need to have the cross pollination of everyone who's involved in this world that we're living in. If anyone is discriminated against and not allowed a seat at the table, not involved, uh, not given funding, support, attention, whatever, if they're not given access, then we're not creating good art because we're not getting cross pollination. That's it. It's just, yeah, you can't deny that. So, in terms of my work, I couldn't say that it's a specific subject matter in a visual sense but I would definitely say that my work is better because of the people that I'm around and so yeah
0: I love your response (laughs) thanks (laughs) how do fairy tales and what one might call the spirituality of fairy tales kind of influence your thinking about your work
2: Fairy tales, folklore, these types of narrative um, narrative things are, are super important to me. One of my big research projects, when I was in London, I was writing a dissertation about SpongeBob SquarePants. Really? Uh, yeah, I wrote my dissertation about um, Leviathan, not Hobbes Leviathan, just the, the object, you know, the, the sea monster Leviathan and SpongeBob SquarePants. And I tried to um, make a line of like, you know, here we have Leviathan, this is the beginning of sea exploration, and the unknown gets this very abstract monster aesthetic. Here be monsters, don't go here, we don't know what the hell is going on, but these guys never came back, whatever, swallowed by a whale, I don't know. You look at the imagery and it's it's this, um, you know, all, all of these sea monsters, or you know, these, these different, uh, in, in folklore, these monsters often have a... Uh, more of a warning purpose. And as we sort of follow through you know the Great Enlightenment, uh, scientific discoveries, we go we go through you know the Industrial Revolution. And that's when animals started wearing clothes. We got the mouse with the gloves. We got the, you know, huh. these we changed how we represent you know, folklore imagery from nature. These animal gods are suddenly our pets. Watson and Crick, you know, and and Rosalind Franklin. We can break down the the genetic code. We know what all these things are made of. Now we have Spongebob Squarepants. (laughs) 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 We're not afraid of anything. We got a little squeak sponge, you know, and I think think fairy tales are are really interesting and, and I love exploring how things are visually represented and how that is an echo of what we understand of, of the
0: world. So in addition to fairy tales, I know that you draw inspiration from a great many sources. And I know that deep in the cultural well, there's kind of like an archetype of the inspired artist. Look, inspiration is everything and inspiration is nothing. And I'm not going to quote Chuck Close here. How will you describe the role of inspiration in your practice? I think
2: inspiration is a luxury. As a self-employed person, my time is spent alone in a room. There's very little inspiration that happens when you sit in a room alone. You, you get it sometimes, and, and you've got to ride that wave when it hits you, and the rest of the time, it's a grind. you got to get in there, you got to work, you got to keep the pencil moving, you got to show up. And, uh, and you got to know that you're going to make some garbage and it's just going to go in the trash and that's fine. But inspiration is a luxury.
0: Yeah. I think that sometimes when inspiration strikes, it strikes as a means to clarify your intention. And I know that there's a certain problematic to the relationship between art and intention. I wonder if you would be willing to discuss with me the issue of intention in your work.
2: I think the purpose of art and, and what we want when we experience art is to be given a, a space of contemplation. Now I don't think that all art has to be really challenging and thought-provoking but the purpose of it is to give you a, a cue of a place where you can go in your in your mind it can be an emotional place. It can be just a, a place of beauty. Like I said, I'm an atheist, but I still, you know, this is my spirituality. It's The museum is my place of worship. The intention of making art for me and and the experience that I have as an audience when I'm looking at art is to be in a place of contemplation, whether it's entertaining or or challenging or calming or infuriating Does that's, that's what my intention is as an artist to make that
0: so if on some level the intention of your work is to create a space for contemplation then what you seek to do is raise questions what questions does your work seek to raise
2: well that's a tough one I don't know I don't know about that one. Um, uh, what I don't, I don't believe I'm asking questions because I think if if I were to ask questions, I think I would also have judgment on an answer. There would be a right and wrong answer if I was asking a question. I I'm not I'm not asking questions. I, w- I want to take you to a space, and you're there. You're there. Be there with it. And that's, that's it. It's not, not what you should think. It's, it's a place for you to be there. I get to take you there. That's, that's all. Now, I might be with, uh, with a lot of my subject matter, you know, I talk about nature and industry a lot. I talk about um, how do we use animals? How do we perceive animals? How, what, what do machines do for us? Those are questions. Those are questions, but I'm not I don't think I'm asking those questions to the viewer. I want to present the viewer with a series of elements where they can sort of internally discuss that. Whether they're seeing beauty in that or whether they're seeing some sort of a challenge in that is more interesting to me than saying, uh, do you see this? Are you looking?
0: This is wrong, (laughs) you know, this is right. So you're more interested in creating a space for contemplation out of which will come questions than you are in actually raising questions with the work itself.
2: That's a really good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So while you're not trying to raise questions directly, you're trying to create a space for contemplation. And while you want your work to create a broad space for contemplation, there are certain problems that you're trying to address in your work. And I'm wondering, what are those problems that your work seeks to speak to?
2: Uh, I, saw, I saw a really good lecture once by an artist who I am fascinated by, Thomas Hirschhorn. He's a Swiss installation artist, I'll say. And he gave this lecture about politics and art or, so anyway, his, his statement was like, every artist has an agenda. Like, if you think you don't have an agenda, like, you, you're wrong, you have an agenda, you've got an agenda, everyone's yes. got an agenda. All art is driven by an agenda. And he was, like, like really ranting about it on the stage, and I was like, well, you has got to be wrong, you know, and, and I was thinking about it. It really changed how I look at art when I go to, a, you know, an exhibition or something. And I'm like, what is their agenda? Like, it's just a basic question. What's their agenda? And and I, I, I believe he's totally right. It's it's actually very interesting and and so I guess my agenda. Um, I would have to say uh it it has always been about our relationship with nature, especially after the Industrial Revolution, how we how we perceive it, how we use it, how we abuse it, all these things. Now more recently, obviously it's become I've become really preoccupied with ideas of extinction, you know, doomsday stuff. I mean, the reality of, of a lot of the stuff that the the world is, is going through, all the, all the collapsing ecospheres and and how much of it, of course, is, is because of human interaction, human decisions and human, you know, missteps. We've become so distanced from nature. And as a city dweller, I, I love the city. I can never live outside the city, but you know nature just gets farther and farther and farther away and i i was reading the the wildlife population has dropped 68% since 1970 that's, that's all wild animals if you counted them all since 1970 68% less population that's insane and that's yes. that's going on outside of the city that's going on in in all these places and and that's not just the tragedy of you know loss of life a bunch of rabbits dying that's that's the collapse of an ecosystem and that's a collapse of the ecosystem that we live in and that's terrifying and tragic and and that's um a very preoccupying thought in in my in my mind and and it's something i can't escape and so so yeah, my my um my work is coming from me being in that space. I think it's important that it be discussed, you know, not just on some uh, some news thing, not some, you know, science article published in a science magazine. This has to be talked about everywhere, even in, in galleries and museums, it has to be talked about in kindergartens and universities and you know, at the fucking police station or McDonald's. I don't care everywhere it needs to be discussed cuz it's an emergency. Yeah, that's, that's, that's my agenda.
0: Yeah. I mean, if you're going to speak to a problem, that's the problem to speak to. And I hope that if our listeners take my advice and they go to the show notes and they link to your work, what you just said as a statement of, The problematizing that you're trying to do and the intersection between that and what can be seen as a more sort of innocent read on your work will do exactly what you want them to do, which is to occupy a space of profound contemplation. And with that perhaps in mind, when you were talking through your previous response and you brought up the Industrial Revolution... In thinking about the Industrial Revolution, perhaps vis-a-vis the age of Romanticism, I am left with this question, which is to say like in thinking about like a very technical revolution to which there was this sort of sensory artistic response, right? Romantic literature and painting and whatnot. Look, art can be really technical. And you went to the schools kicking and screaming. (laughs) And you rebelled against these schools, but you took what you took that taught you all of the technical dimensions that you've mastered. Art is technical. It is also very much a sense and a feeling. And I wonder if you'd be willing to discuss with or for me the interplay between the technical and the sensory dimensions of your practice.
2: I think the technical side of of my work is extremely lacking. (laughs) I do a lot of stuff with duct tape and staple guns and not really putting a lot of thought and care into the aesthetics of things. Sadly, I could, I, I could do better. No, that's that's wrong. That's wrong. I like the aesthetics of duct tape and stable guns. That's
0: a total lie. Yeah, I could, I, it seems yeah, like a total sorry. choice that's, to me.
2: That's a choice. That's a choice.
0: It's your punk ethos. It's the punk ethos. <laughs> <laughs> I can't escape it. You can't uh, escape your past. I
2: can't escape my past. Nor would you want to, I don't think. I don't want to. I love that. But that said, all the technical things that I can do well and do do well. I can do because either I had an extremely good teacher, or I hired someone extremely good to do it. Either one, there you you pay for that. You pay for that with your time. You pay for that with your money. It's an investment. But my work is yeah. It's it's quick and dirty. It's it's definitely using tools that people have access to that anyone could could do. It's nothing. Um, not not trying to show off with that stuff
0: okay but hold on real quick your painting your composition that stuff is technical also it is but it's also a feeling and so what i'm seeking to do is if possible to push you into discussing the duality and the intersection of that
2: okay so so i think there's something almost like oh god like masturbatory of you know making art you have to do it in a way that's really pleasurable and for me that is you know the the technical drawing god I could do that all day it feels good it feels good to do it to plan it out to measure it and get the lines and get out my protractor and I like I like cross hatching and shading and with a technical pencil mechanical pencil it feels good I, I'm not trying to show off with that and frankly other people could probably do it better and oh, these are just tools they're just tools to get an idea across the technical stuff is for me the vehicle to get the work done for me to enjoy making it for the, the pleasure of creating something to get really lost in that zone of making a thing producing an object and so I think that for me that would be what's important about technical process but Ultimately, I think, you know, in many instances, a photograph of something, a drawing of something can both convey a a concept with the same power, with maybe a different power, with the same power. It's not about being the best painter, or being the best photographer, the subject, and the the reason for making it is, is, for me, ranks higher up in the hierarchy of what I appreciate in art. In a, in a good
0: work of art that's...
2: I don't care about technique that
0: much. <laughs> well, apologetically, despite that, I want to ask you one small question about the role of technique in your practice in the hopes that hearing you talk about it will help me to clarify some of my thoughts and to punctuate some of my language around the problems of technique. Now, as you know, I'm doing the work to reconnect to my childhood hobby of playing the piano. Of course, playing music is technical. It's also very much a feeling. It's a sensory experience wrapped up in a technical experience or vice versa. And among my many struggles as a middle-aged person seeking to foster a space for creativity for the first time in his adult life is this problem of the pursuit of technique. Like I don't have the training and I don't have the chops. Like the technique isn't natural to me because I haven't done the work to make the technical feel natural. And that's probably not going to change too radically. Mostly what I'm trying to do, if I'm to be honest, is to get my feels out. But some technique is essential for that. Oh, I'm afraid I could go on about this for a while. But I suppose at the root of it, I want to know what it feels like to have a mastery of these technical dimensions, to have out your protractor and doing, and you're doing your shading And it's going well. And you're in maybe a flow state, as some people might call it. You're doing the work. Remembering this is a podcast about work. Mm. So you're in your studio and you're doing your work and you have an instrument in your hand and you're methodically, perhaps repetitiously, but methodically and thoughtfully or not, Mm. creating art. Mm. How does that feel?
2: If I'm doing it right, it's a challenge. It's just, just like an athlete, just like a musician. If you're not doing that every day, putting in the hours, you get worse. I mean, not at making art, but at controlling your tools. There's muscle memory. There's um, you know, the way you're using your perception. Like I said, I don't use color a lot. That's not an important element to my works. But, you know, my, my friends who paint, they spend hours mixing palettes. And I, that's torture for me. But they have this perception of color and and the understanding of the functions. They're on a different level. For me, when I'm using my tools when I'm doing it right, it's hard. It's, um, you got to stay motivated in a room by yourself. That's hard. And you got to keep it up. You got to keep doing it. You got to do it every day. That's a grind. But yeah, when, when, when you do that, when you, when you're able to have that discipline, God damn, it feels good. It feels very good. And if you're lucky, you never get the feeling that you're great at it you get the feeling that you're good at it and you're getting better if you're yeah if you're doing it right you keep getting better but you never master it i mean i don't think so i don't think you know if i mastered something i'd probably just give up and get bored (laughs) it's more it's more spinoza spinoza has that concept of happiness being like about like moving to the next level that is this this is the gratification and the joy that you get from getting better at something you know whether that's you know a, a closer friendship or a better abilities at carpentry this is this is where happiness comes from it's like gratification of improvement I, th- I think that's what i try to harness in my studio practice i try to keep my ass moving and getting better
0: Is that what it is for you, actually? Is it like, like, are you just kind of grinding it out, climbing Mount Everest one step at a time?
2: No, (laughs) (laughs) that's, that's what it looks like when it's going good. When it works, when I'm, when I'm disciplined, when I'm, when I'm motivated, when I, when I have deadlines coming up, I'm amazingly disciplined and motivated. When I have nothing on the horizon, I am... you know, a drift at sea. I am
0: a real artist.
2: Oh, I'm staring out the goddamn window, looking know, drinking coffee, going, Oh, look at those clouds. No, it's it's hard. I'm I'm usually looking at my phone. It's a lie. I don't look out the window. <laughs> There's no good view from my studio window. God, you know what it looks out? It looks out on um to the to the, the Spree River. You know that molecule man sculpture? I
0: Hate that sculpture. I abhor that I sculpture. Hate that you have to sculpture. look. At, you have to look at that. Oh. Where is your studio, by the way? I don't it's, know. Um,
2: it's in the um, Am Flutgraben 3. You know, it's by Arena and like Freischwimmer, Club de Visionär, All these yeah. clubs that you go to. Right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm at all. <laughs> all of
0: them. Are you on the east side or the west side of the Warschauer Brücke? I'm
2: I'm east of the Warschauer Brücke. Okay. i I'm in. The east, that's, uh, that part of Kreuzberg comes all the way down to the Strasse. Yeah. And my building, my wall of my studio is the former wall. Oh okay. Berlin Wall. It, it went through my building. The building was built in the in the 20s, 1920s. And it used to be where they painted buses and trolleys.
0: You have a studio in that space? Yeah. Sweet. So since you brought up your studio space, I hope you don't mind. And I know we've been at this for a while can we talk about your studio space a little bit? Absolutely. So postulated, you're doing contemporary work in an important historic space. Mm. And tempted as I am to ask you about how that might feel, I want to ask you something much more kind of banal. What does your studio space look like? And what do you do when you show up?
2: Yeah. Um. So my studio space that I, I'm currently in, um, um, a former, uh, bus and trolley painting factory. They used to paint the enamel and, and, um, and for all of these old buses and trolleys in Berlin. Um, it was built in the 1920s. It's this big old factory building. It was closed down after World War II when they built the wall, they built it through the building. So this building was not touched from the end of World War Two until nineteen ninety-two, I believe, some artists moved in and made it into this artist space. So it's real wacky, sort of run-down factory space. I've been there about fifteen years. And so I really I I I'm I'm in this pretty deep rut that I'm I'm actually trying to get out of right now. I'm not trying to leave the building, but I wanna to move to a different studio in the building because I just need um, as we say in German, Tapetenwechsel. I need to change the wallpaper. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I have one of these old contracts, where I'm I'm paying a very very low rent, and so I I can afford a pretty big space to work in.
1: How big is the space?
2: Seventy five square meters.
0: That is that's, substantial. That's
2: just, yeah.
0: When you show up at the studio, mm-hmm. do you have a ritual? Do you have a process that you go through to kind of get yourself? in the frame of mind to do what you do
2: i do i do i have um it depends on what i'm working on because the space since i work on a lot of really large scale projects sometimes there are no tables or chairs in in the space because i'm uh everything's just covered with uh sculpture pieces or something but most of the time I'm, i'm i'm working on the walls the floors are pretty free so i have a I have a sofa. I put these big wheels on it—these big, like rubber wheels—so I can just wheel it around the space. And depending on the light or what I want to look at, um, kind of wheel this. It's a little, it's a little sofa, but I wheel it around like a love seat, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I wheel it around, kind of park it where I want, put the brakes on, and um, usually just sit and have myself a good think. I try my best to avoid podcasts until I am into my project. I, I listen to so many podcasts i love podcasts but if i start with that i'll just lay on the sofa and listen to podcasts all day <laughs> and literally stare at the ceiling and get nothing done so i try to i try to sort of you know um get in there look at what needs to be done i'm a big list maker i'll make a list i'll make a coffee i have a, a kitchen down the hall i go share it share it with about 40 other artists and maybe run into some friends chit chat
0: Can you talk to me a bit about looking at your work? Like, your work requires you to observe your work. Can you talk a little bit about that dimension of your practice?
2: Yeah, I never thought about that. Yeah, I look at my work a lot. (laughs) Sometimes, like on, I don't know, like on TikTok or something, on, on YouTube, you'll see these videos of like a time lapse of someone making some dreadfully hideous painting. But they're they're enjoying it and they're doing a great job and it's really cool and it comes out you know and they do a time lapse and you just see them working 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 and that's like not how it is for any normal artist that I know of. I'd say about ten percent of the time is actual you know brush on canvas work time, and and most of it is staring at it. I guess in my head I'm doing a lot of like you know, superimposing things on my head, or I'll hold something up uh, just to see, you know, there's something un, unbalanced, maybe I could, what is this color is too light, there's something, you know, how can I make this less balanced, it's too balanced, and I do a lot of taping, I'll just like draw something on a piece of paper, tape it on, or take a picture, sometimes I take a picture of my phone, and then I'll sketch on it with, you know, with my finger or something, on one of those little apps, and Kind of just see, yeah, a lot of the process is looking at it. And the danger is when you look at something over and over again, you can't see it after a while. It becomes invisible, and then you got to grab your friends. And if you're lucky, you have a studio space with some colleagues around. If you're real lucky, they're German, and they're real direct and honest. <laughs> and they're not yeah. just blowing smoke up your ass and, you know, trying to convince you to share a six-pack in the middle of the afternoon or something like that. Um when I can get criticism from a non artist, that's that's when I get some real honesty because you're getting the perspective of someone who's not, you know, trained in critical analysis in a, in this visual way. So when I was in, in university, I loved talking to the custodians and the janitors, working late at night <clears throat> when no one's around, they'll come in and and, and talk to they generally avoid doing it when there's a lot of staff around, professors and stuff like that, but Oh, God, have such beautiful conversations because they look at art all the time and they just don't get to engage with it and have that dialogue. Cleaning staffs of museums, amazing, amazing people that have such beautiful things to say. And their appreciation of art is usually like, oh, God, you know, so many times installing a work, you know, be shuffling around late at night and you see someone, oh, yeah, okay what's your favorite work? And Oh, and they always have some passionate, you know. And it's like, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, a lot of time looking at stuff.
0: But well, just for the record, you are cordially invited to cordially invite me to your <laughs> studio anytime. Oh, oh, yes. You know, absolutely. for the price of a six pack, I, I will <laughs> stick my two cents in there. I would really love that. Well, all right, let's call it a date. I don't know if I want to urge you to speak about it, But if you have something to say, please do. It could just be that the most important part of your work is looking at your work. Like really observing your creations. Just wheeling the couch over, perhaps inviting some confidants, and looking. And I don't know if I have a great question about that. But I imagine that to be both daunting and serene. It's daunting because at some point or another, you're going to put this thing out in the world and then it has a life of its own and that has its own baggage. But totally serene because it's just you on the couch, in the studio in the process and i'd imagine on a good day in the studio like that sort of intersection between daunting and serene feels just right and you get to observe your work and perhaps in the best days at the studio you get a clear sense about like the next step you know by looking you're like oh well then this should be how this proceeds, right? And you have like what we might call progress. And maybe it's one step forward, two steps back, or vice versa. Maybe that's a good day. Can you talk to me about what like a tough day at the studio feels like? When the wheels fall off the proverbial couch.
2: <laughs> I can. I <laughs> first thought that was really that was really well said, uh, about it being daunting and serene. I, I think that does really capture that, you know, that feeling of, oh, there's so much more to do. And oh, this is such a good place to be in. And yeah, when the when the wheels fall off when things yeah, when the duct tape melts, (laughs) because there's a heat wave. And it just holds up till 34 degrees. Once you hit 36, your whole sculpture falls apart. And you have to do a delivery. There's art transports coming in 10am. And you have to rethink the whole thing. Yeah, no, I. I a lot of my process is very chaotic and walking a tightrope of will this work? And I, I love experimentation, and a lot of experimentation is failure. And so I, I have a timer system. Where I figure out the, the most reliable way to get something done, and how much time that takes. Look at my budget. Okay, i was building this geodesic dome because I made this video that I wanted to project inside of a dome so that people would see it in a stupidly fun project to work on but like um I made it more complicated than it needed to be and just the the mathematics of building a geodesic dome is first off like really really a lot harder than I thought it was um, but having built several of them now, I should
0: have been smoking in the fucking girls' room. Like, Oof, class. <laughs> man, math
2: class, guys, pay attention in math class. No, it's like it's like next level trigonometry, and it's it's really actually quite quite beautiful math if you if you want to like nerd out about math.
0: Yeah, I do, I do. But
2: go <sighs> um, ahead. but anyway, um, I wanted to try doing some stuff with bamboo for this project, basically. So I calculated, okay. I have to build this in the end. It has to be done at this day. That will take 16 hours of work to do it. I have up until then to fuck around. And I I kept building and building and building and it just kept collapsing and collapsing. And I literally have a physical timer and I use this in projects. You can fuck around until the timer runs out and then you got to do it the way that works. So that's, that's how the sofa works on on a bad day yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, just making one disaster after another fighting against time
0: so Hannah in the text that that answer you kind of set me up for this curiosity I have you know you were talking about getting an installation loaded onto the van to be displayed somewhere and we've talked a lot about your thinking about your practice and we talked a bit about what happens at your studio But there's this other side of what it is that you do, which is sharing it with the world. And I know that this is often fraught. I guess I wanna know how and why and when you choose to exhibit your work and what it feels like to publicly present your work.
2: I don't have a lot of say in the matter when, where things get or which things get shown. You know, I think most artists are are at the mercy of their curators, their gallerists, their friends and network so i've I've rarely said no to something i'm I'm grateful for any chance to show my work i I work hard and i I, I want to put it out there on the one hand and um on the other hand i'm I'm actually a really socially anxious person. I don't like crowds i'm uh I'm really shy around people I don't know. It's really stressful. I, God, I usually I usually throw up before an opening. <laughs> just I I just get so worked up and nervous about the people, not even what they'll say. I mean, I've had a, my fair share of really nasty, mean, hurtful reviews. Just critics hating my work. I can handle it. I just get real nervous about rooms full of people, especially when they're paying attention to me. I don't. Not not someone who celebrates my birthday like with big parties or anything like that. You know, I, I hate being at my own opening. I really do. If I if I could get away with not going, I wouldn't wouldn't go at all. But you got to do that. It's part of the job. Everyone's got something that they don't like doing with their job. And you know, when I'm when I'm really lucky, I got a bunch of really supportive friends coming by and just being there. And and if I'm extra lucky, I have a gentle gallerist or museum director who can gently pull me away from my friends when I need to talk to whoever the important person is that I, I should be, you know, talking to. Yeah, it's, it's the part of my job that I'm the worst at. I'm really bad. I think people who do this well, I have a lot more success in their careers. I'm not, not good at rubbing the elbows and I I love talking about artwork, but talking about myself and my artwork is, is a challenge outside of a one-on-one situation where I'm making a real human contact. That said, when I, when I do force myself to, you know, get out there and do it, uh, a lot of good comes out of it. I've made some incredible friends and uh, met colleagues and stuff that, that I've been friends with for years. So it's, yeah, it's, it's my least favorite thing. I'd rather not do it at all, but Got to do it, and it feels nice to present a work that you worked hard on and and give it to people and give them a space to be with it, and that's why you do it, right? But it's also it's hard if you're not like a megalomaniac, you know. <laughs> it's hard to be like, look how great I am! Look at what I made! It's not that's not what I what I do. I don't I don't like the attention. I don't like any attention, but but I like I like making fun things and and making, you know, neat places and I like taking people there. And that that feels really good. And that's that's the kind of art I like looking at and that's what I want to make.
1: Hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm really sorry to hear that it's so hard for you to be in those exhibition spaces. It makes sense. The whole thing is the antithesis of the entire punk ethos. Yeah, it is, <laughs> right? And you're put in a position where you have to rub elbows with people who let's just say you might not see eye to eye with. I'm sure that the best openings and the best gallery spaces keep you buzzing and keep you happy. And then there's another side and we don't have to get too far into it. But that other side probably requires some healing. And I have the experience that art can be healing that doing art can restore us, that it can repair us. Doing art can also be endlessly frustrating. I wonder if you could speak to this kind of damning duality, that art can be really frustrating and overwhelming, but it can also be very restorative.
2: I don't find art to be restorative. In my experience of, of uh, art art doesn't heal me at all there's no it hasn't maybe maybe it will someday I, it definitely heals other people i strongly believe in art therapy it's a great tool for for working through things art has never healed me it is not in my toolbox of things that i use to heal it's it's a passion it's a job it's work it's a challenge it's frustrating but it's not something that i, I use when I'm working on myself, I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on a limb and say you probably shouldn't use your career as that. That should be a hobby, so that you can you you can focus on that and not have to think about meeting a deadline, uh, making money off of it, trying to get attention and network and stuff like that. If you wanna if you wanna look into healing yourself, use a tool that you can really devote to healing and and that's not to say that people don't make it work somehow as a career and a healing thing but yeah no it's 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 a tall order <laughs> right? it's a tall order man yeah. <laughs> yeah no 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 i mean they're, okay they're, the thing that i do get the thing that makes it fulfilling is it's gratifying it's gratifying to you know create something to make something to finish it to improve you know like I think most people are mentally, psychologically, emotionally at their best when they're able to fulfill goals by being creative and productive and making something they feel good about. So there's that. I mean, but that's not healing for me. That's not a healing thing. That's, that's feeling good. That's nice. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah.
0: This is work.
2: This is work. Yeah.
0: Well, good. This is my podcast about work.
2: Welcome It's not a podcast
1: about therapy
0: No, no, and if so we would need another host (laughs) This one needs a therapist (laughs) Not a podcast about therapy And in this year, my podcast about work I'm afraid I can't let you leave without doing me two favors First, can you share with me one cultural artifact that informs or somehow embodies your practice. It could be a poem, a song, a film, a book, a mural, whatever. Tell me what it is and what this artifact says about how and why you do what you do. Um, I, I hate these questions because I'm always like
2: there's so much pressure to find I'm like there's so many things that are so important but what's the most important thing of all of them I'm, like flipping through this like Rolodex in my brain of like the best record ever like the oh my god you have to see this artist stuff and like oh my god there's oh there's a poem and there's this oh god and, I'm, so I'm like I can't choose <laughs> there's like pressure for it really to be the best because what if like I wake up tomorrow and I'm like, that's not the
0: best. Tell me, you I, know what, if you wake up tomorrow and you no, wish you would have said something else, just I'll put it in the show notes. Just like text okay. it to me and I'll put it in the <laughs> show notes. I'll send you
2: my, my short list of things I lost sleep about not saying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but we'll make this okay. the tentative artifact. Okay. All right, here's the tentative artifact. Are you ready? Um I'm I'm reading a fantastic book right now and I I find it to be just um just really, really amazing information about how the world works. And it has this just, wow, like so many pages. I'm just like, wow, I had no idea. Um, it's called Entangled Life, How Fungi Make Our Worlds, Change Our Minds, and Shape Our Futures. Uh, it's a book that just came out last year by Merlin Sheldrake. Yeah, he's a, a scientist who studies fungi and um, and just has some really interesting insights into this world of fungus and mushrooms and things underground and above ground. And it's just just amazing it'll it'll really blow your mind what's going on down there and yeah yeah I, i highly recommend it
0: all right well i'll link to it in the show notes and i'll also link to your website and some of your other media platforms in the show notes and when our listeners explore your work i think they'll understand why that book matters to you i think it makes perfect sense i have one more small favor before you go is there a guest you could recommend that I should pursue for my podcast? This could be someone you know personally or, more broadly speaking, a profession that you'd like to learn more about. I was, I
2: was ready for this question. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I have a friend who has a job that, like, I was like, that's a job? Like, she's like, yeah, this is a, it's the coolest job. I get to do all these. Like, and she tells me about it. It's, she is a doctor of maritime archaeology. Really? And it's such a cool job. It's really, really cool. Uh, I can I can give you her contact. I was like, maritime archaeology, what what do you do? Artifacts, man. Just really cool artifacts. Lots of Viking stuff. Yeah. Yeah.
0: All right. Hook me up. Hannah D., you know I'm crazy about you, right? <laughs> I'm sorry I took so much of your time. I hope I didn't torture you terribly. But This it was has been... absolutely delightful. It's been my pleasure to learn about you and about your work. I, I ran you through the gauntlet, and it was a total pleasure to have you on my humble little podcast. Thanks for being here.
2: The pleasure was all mine. I really have been loving listening to your podcasts, and and it's it's really cool to get to be on it, and, and uh, thank you for all the really nice questions.
1: We did it. We did it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, All
0: man. Right. Woo! And that, my friends, is the birthday girl herself, Hannah Doherty. She's the jam. I told you she's the jam. This season of the podcast has been the jam. So before I share with you the jam that I wrote and recorded for Hannah for this podcast, if you'll bear with me. I feel a deep compulsion to express some gratitude to some people without whom this season would not have been so jamtastic. First, I want to thank Carl Hauck, a patron of the podcast, a former student, and a pal. Carl was the one who came up with the new name for this podcast, formerly known as Studs, For a Living. So thanks for that, Carl. I love hearing it roll off of my tongue, if for no other reason than it gives me one more reason to think fondly of you. And I would be remiss to not offer some gratitude to all of the patrons who have been supporting this podcast over at patreon.com slash forliving, all of the patrons who have emailed me, DM'd me, shared ideas with me, influenced the flow of the thing. Thank you all so much for supporting this podcast. Really, it... It means the world to me. It's just so nice to have your support. I'd also like to thank Rotom Fisher. Rotom has been mastering these podcasts since day one. If it sounds good in your ears, it's because of Rotom. Dude, the guy's so patient with me. I'm so grateful to have Rotom Fisher on my side. And the guy who introduced me to Rotom is my pal, Brian Trehan. Brian has produced and engineered all but one of the songs that I've written and composed about the conversations on this podcast. He has been such a profound source of inspiration, such a great coach, and such a kind spirit. Yeah, that's what it is, the spirit of Brian Trahan. Thanks for the spirit, Brian. And before I press play on this track that I wrote about my conversation with Hannah, I just want to take a moment to thank all of the people who have contributed musically. I want to thank my beautiful bride, Megan, who sang with me on half the songs. I want to thank Megan's baby brother, Kevin, for playing guitars and bass on Bodies Keep the Score. I want to thank Marty Kanjoka in Chicagoland USA for laying drums down on almost all these tracks. And of course, his brother, Mark Kanjoka for blowing the horn on Voronyesh. Big shout out to Dr. Curtis and the John F. Kennedy School Choir, who belted it out despite the masks, despite the times. They nailed it on Bodies Keep the Score. And last but surely not least, my dearest childhood friend, Scott Robin, who's been a sounding board throughout this process. An endless stream of ideas and support. And the guitarist on the track you're about to hear. So it's in this way that season seven, my season exploring the working lives of artists, is in some ways the ultimate manifestation of the vision that I began with two years ago. It's bringing my people together from Berlin, Barcelona, and Chicago to earnestly and empathically engage in conversation and creative pursuits. I said at the head of this episode that this season has been the most ambitious and the most rewarding creative pursuit of my life. Oh, shit. (laughs) Can't get all emotional about it now. Okay, gotta talk. (laughs) I gotta talk into the can. Listen, without these people, I couldn't have done this. Truly. So thank you all. Look, (sighs) Maybe I'm getting all emotional because the last couple of months have been rough. Being in and out of the hospital, nothing fatal, but nothing fun. But with the support of my friends, we managed to pull this thing off anyway. If there's an episode of this season that you haven't heard, dude, listen to it. Eight for eight. Every episode is great. You can't go wrong. Do yourself a favor and listen to artists talk about their work. So like I said, it's been a tough run for me. 2022 hasn't done me too many favors yet. So I'm taking a little time off the podcast. Not long. I'm going to take six or eight weeks off. Might rebroadcast some old episodes that I think deserve a little attention. Maybe I'll just leave some dead air for six or eight weeks and come back in late August. Next season, by the way, is going to be a return to the original vision for this podcast. I'm going to be talking to people in all sorts of disparate professions. Already got some conversations lined up, super excited for it. But yo, hey, I'm taking some time off. Going to fly to Chicago, going to be with the family, going to check with the old people. Haven't been home to Chicagoland USA for three years. it's my time and I'm gonna take it. But before I go, here is a song that I wrote about my conversation with Hannah Dougherty. The music was co-written by the best friend since the day I was born, Scott Robin. The bass was laid down by Marty Kanjoka, the drums also by Marty Kanjoka, and my boy Marty Kanjoka engineered the sound on this thing. That beautiful voice you hear in the background? Megan Fleming. So my best friend from childhood, my best friend, my wife, my dear friend of more than three decades, and Joka, we're coming together to send off season eight with a bang, not a whimper. Enjoy this one, my friends. We're calling it Keep the Pencil Moving. Please take care, y'all. Be kind to yourself and be good to your people. And I'll check back in with you in six or eight weeks. Here it is.
1: Joe. Cast of characters for pure ephemeral.